This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program, and first of all, thanks to all of you who contributed last week during our annual Pledge Drive program. Our goal was to make $60,000. We didn't quite get there. We made about 47000 But the truth is, you can still contribute, dear listener, and we hope that you will, especially if you didn't get a chance to pledge last week. Go to kdvs.fundraiser.org and do what you can. The station really does need $60,000 to operate uh, for one whole year, which you think about it may be, you know, the bargain of the U.S., certainly the bargain of uh, non-commercial radio. Our thanks to all of you who contributed uh, last week. I believe that Jim from Napa takes the cake for his contribution of $250. Thanks, Jim, for that. We'll see if we can't come up with a list for next week's program to thank each and every one of you personally contributed during our hour of programming. We very, very much appreciate your efforts, and we're not kidding. Big plus of this is, unlike National Public Radio, we, need, we don't need to do this every three months. In fact, we can generally go the other 51 weeks throughout the year without having to, uh, to ask for your support. So it's a small price to pay, ladies and gentlemen, and if you did not contribute, please, please do so. Special thanks from me to DJ Zach, who sat in as my wingman on uh, last week's program. I sort of uh, shanghaied him at the last minute, and he did an admirable job. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Zach. And, uh, and by the way, I had a chance to uh, hang out a bit with uh, our own favorite comedian, who is also America's foremost political comic, Mr. Will Durst, appearing at the, uh, the twin anniversary special, the 20th anniversary of the Humor Times. I was there with James Israel. Along with Ron Cooper, the head of uh, Access Sacramento, which was celebrating its 25th anniversary. It was a nice harmonic convergence, and uh, Durst was on uh, last Friday at, uh, at the Coloma Center. I hope that uh, some of you were able to attend, because if you did, you know what I'm talking about. Nice thing about having a beer with a, uh, a comedian of national renown is that <laughs> some of the throwaway lines you'll kick out uh, you might be able to use for your joke of the day which I think we will do. While hoisting a beer with uh, Mr. Durst at the SoCal's uh, pub over on Folsom Boulevard in Sacramento, I mentioned it was a shame that uh, James Brown had passed on recently. Durst said, yeah, you know, it took about three months to bury the guy. They had him in, like, South Carolina. They had him in Atlanta. They were shipping him here. They were shipping him there. Said, well, you know, two weeks after he was dead, he was still the hardest-working man in show business. And speaking of comedy, we're going to have another chat today in our second segment with a couple of up-and-coming comics, Mike O'Connell and Jason Armenio. We had a great fun with them a few weeks back, and we thought it'd be a good time to bring them back today. So, we will. But let us begin today's show as we like to do with On This Date in History, the date in question being the 28th of April. It's a red-letter day in science. It was on April 28th in 1686 that Isaac Newton presented to the Royal Society in London the first volume of his masterpiece, Philosophy Naturalis Principia Mathematica. The work detailed the Newtonian laws of motion and were nothing short of revolutionary. 
Newton's stunning work, this volume in particular, led uh, Michael Hart to list him as the second among Michael Hart's list of the 100 most influential persons in world history. He actually came in ahead of Jesus, but uh, we refer you to our own archives at radioparallax.com for our uh, chat we had with Michael Hart some years back. On April 28, 1932, a vaccine for yellow fever was announced during a meeting for the American Societies for Experimental Biology in Philadelphia. Yellow fever had been a plague among tropical diseases and had caused a great delay in the construction of a canal across Panama. This vaccine was the culmination of work started three decades earlier by Walter Reed. It's also a red-letter day for adolescent boys, or anyone who ever was an adolescent boy, for it was on April 28, 1947, that the Norwegian anthropologist Thor Heyerdahl left Peru aboard his balsa raft Kontiki, bound for Polynesia. He covered the distance of 4,300 miles in 101 days. While in Oslo a few years back, I had a chance to see the original Kontiki balsa raft, and it Sure brought back memories of reading that book in high school. Anyone who was ever 16 and read that book wished they'd been aboard that raft. Of course, I should point out it was a great day for adventuring and seafaring, but not necessarily that great a day for anthropology, since Heyerdahl's theories that uh, Polynesia were populated by peoples of, from South America is now widely regarded to be a crackpot theory. Of course, I should clarify that there may have been some people that did move east to west, but the majority of the Polynesian population clearly came from Asia sailing east. And finally, it was on this date in 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson, to prevent what he claimed would be a communist dictatorship in the Dominican Republic, sent more than 22,000 U.S. troops in to restore order, an act widely condemned throughout Latin America. This apparently is another action based upon a crackpot theory, that that the Cuban communists were trying to take over the Dominican Republic. Turns out they were not. All right, our quote of the day comes from uh, Senator John Kyle, who made some wildly inaccurate uh, attacks on Planned Parenthood. He recently declared that abortions constituted well over 90% of what the organization does when the true figure is about 3%. Our quote is the follow-up comment by his staff, which later explained to widespread derision that this was, quote, not intended to be a factual statement, unquote. I'm going to put that disclaimer on a lot of pronouncements made by politicians. Our clip of the day comes from the late, great Kurt Vonnegut, who once said, Dear future generations, please accept our apologies. We were roaring drunk on petroleum. Our joke today, and I think we will do an extra one today, comes from uh, Dave Barry, who said, When my son Rob and I visited Everglades National Park, I was concerned about alligators. It did not help that Rob kept reminding me how fast alligators can move over land. Reminding people how fast alligators can move is a long-standing Florida tradition. Over short distances, an alligator can outrun a horse, people will say. Or, in 1983, the Air Force tracked an alligator going 387 miles an hour. Fortunately, alligators don't corner well, so if one is chasing you, you're supposed to run in circles. I'm serious. Children are taught this in Florida, while children in other states are learning how to read. Yeah. 
Our stat of the day, and in, in nine years of doing this program, this may be the dumbest stat of the day. According to CNN Opinion Research Corporation, 87% of Americans say the Gulf of Mexico has not completely recovered from the BP spill a year ago. Well, could be. But the addendum is that 51% say it eventually will, whereas 36% say it never will. And what are we basing this on? Apparently nothing. Nevertheless, we will try to continue to follow that story. As in, what were the real impacts and when will things get better? More basically, can they? Anyway, more on that on future programs. Let us do the good, the bad, and the ugly. many of you have told us is your favorite part of the program. And I would note that we often rely upon the Week magazine for these particular selections. So we started by noting it was a good week last week for the Week magazine. For the fact that in the wake of all this hubbub over the British royal wedding, the Week took the time to point out the following. While they seem like the quintessential English family from the 1714 ascension of George I, who was the elector of Hanover until the early 20th century, the British royal clan was predominantly and proudly German. Of course, once a war broke out with Germany in 1914, those Teutonic roots were thought to be a dangerous liability. So in 1917, King George V announced in the London Times that his family was changing its name to Windsor from their then-current name of Saxby-Coburg-Goethe, which had replaced Hanover when Queen Victoria married Prince Albert back in 1840. The reason we're citing the Week magazine on this is they couldn't resist pointing out that when news of that change reached Germany, George V's cousin, Kaiser Wilhelm II, quipped he was looking forward to the next production of that famous Shakespearean play, The Merry Wives of Saxby-Coburg-Goethe. All right, it was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for lonely fugitives. After Manuel Albert Soris, an international fugitive sought by Portugal since he skipped out on a prison sentence in 2008, was caught while driving in the carpool lane of the New Jersey Turnpike without enough passengers. All right, and it was an ugly week last week for childhood. After a new law in New York State, made childhood games such as tag, wiffle ball, and horseshoes, well, it it puts them under a designation as non-passive recreational activities with significant risk of injury, which does subject them to regulation by local health officials. This caused Republican State Senator Patty Ritchie to say she'll fight the proposal on behalf of her youngest constituents. I'm just trying to save summer, says Ritchie. You know, the older I get, the more I've concluded that certain busybodies out there, you know, in, in, in totalitarian societies become informants to the secret police. I don't know, in America, they do, they do things like get together to put more speed bumps in your neighborhood or, or, or form homeowners associations to make sure that you can't have a different colored garden hose in your front yard or something. 
Yeah, we had a great chat with our uh, our favorite lawyer, Steve Alexander, about that topic some years ago. We'll have to bring bring Steve back. He was once cited for not keeping his garage doors washed well enough. And here's an item. I'm not sure whether this is a good week for, a bad week for, or ugly week for. It's probably all three. But l- let's call it a confused week for term limits. In the wake of the news, which we reported on briefly last week, that Cuba's Communist Party approved sweeping economic changes last week at its first party congress in 14 years, at which time it was announced by both Fidel and Raul Castro that they now support a limit of two five-year terms for top officials. It was uh, criticized by uh, critics of the regime, somewhat understandably, since the Castro brothers have been in power since 1959, as window dressing said human rights activist Elizardo Sanchez Santa Cruz. In this way, the ruling elites are giving themselves 10 more years of totalitarian continuity. But the part I liked the most out of this story was they say mass layoffs are planned for the public sector and the private sector is due to expand. Having been to Cuba, I would ask, what private sector? Every time they go so far as to allow you to get a meal in a private home, they turn around and revoke the privilege. From the Only in America file, also from the Week magazine, we have this item. The city of Thornton, Colorado, has outlawed spinning barbershop poles. This tradition of marking barbershops with a red, white, and blue striped pole dates back to medieval times. But city official Robin Brown said the modern mechanized version poses a threat to public safety. We don't want signs to be distracting, says Brown, especially to motorists. You know, I think Robin Brown would have made a fine informant for the secret police in another nation. I hasten to add when I say that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regents of the University of California. All of whom we do feel confident are able to drive past a spinning barber pole without wrecking their automobile. Of course, let's balance that off with an only in Russia item. Reportedly, police in Russia are searching for a portly hypnotist who approaches elderly customers in banks and hypnotizes them into withdrawing cash for him. The subject has allegedly been captured on surveillance cameras in the city of Stavropol and is believed to have targeted at least eight seniors. Said one victim, Myra Sovic, I remember this man coming up to me and saying he desperately needed money and I would help him. The next day, my bank manager told me I had withdrawn my life savings. Radio Parallax is somewhat skeptical of this particular story. Although we would like to suggest that Radio Parallax needs your money. Your eyes are growing heavy. You feel the need to sleep. First, get out your checkbook. And I got to say, we've been kind of hard on the Wall Street Journal on this program, basically because we think their editorial page is run by lunatics. But here's one we like. Writing in the WSJ, Donald Luskin said that although novelist Ayn Rand has this new role as the Tea Party's Nostradamus, she's not a very good fit. Noted Luskin, the real Ayn Rand never meshed very well with the conservative movement, which loathed her during her lifetime. Rand, who died in 1982, was an atheist, a feminist, an outspoken supporter of abortion rights, and an opponent of the Vietnam War. She worked in Hollywood, had a non-traditional, shall we say, personal lifestyle, and was a critic of crony capitalism. But I guess now that she's dead, the various Tea Partiers can shape her any way they want. 
And of course, having seen uh, the actions of Ayn Rand acolyte Ellen Greenspan in action, we have to say that her effect on uh, American governance has not been a happy one. Newsweek described her as a kind of politicized L. Ron Hubbard, a novelist philosopher who inspired a cult which deems her the greatest human being that ever lived. Apparently, Wisconsin Representative Paul Ryan is a huge fan, even makes his staff read Atlas Shrugged. And no, we haven't seen the movie yet, we're not sure we will, but uh, stay tuned on that one. But uh, speaking of crony capitalism, no, we're not ready to talk about Inside Job yet, but I do want to give an attaboy to Newsweek for their section entitled Pyramid of Profiteers on the April 18th edition, which talked about some of the most shameless people out there who profited from our economic collapse, none of whom by the way, have been punished in any way or even indicted. The article lists some of the who's who of people who profited from the disaster. The three at the top of the Newsweek pyramid were Al Dunlap, Dick Fold, and Angelo Mozillo. Dunlap was from the Sunbeam Company. He boosted their earnings to record levels through dubious accounting procedures. The impact was that investors felt duped and Sunbeam ultimately filed for bankruptcy. Dunlap's punishment, he had to pay $15 million to settle a shareholder in SEC lawsuits. How much did he make before that? Well, we're not sure, but we're pretty confident it was a lot more than that. Dick Fold was at Lehman Brothers. He stubbornly passed up deals that could have saved the bank. The impact was investors paid the price when the company went bankrupt. His punishment? Well, he's been subpoenaed by the U.S. attorney, but hasn't actually been charged with anything yet. Fold was the guy that corrected Congress when they alleged that he'd made $400 million while at Lehman Brothers and said, no, 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 it was, it was more like 300 Top of the pyramid was Angelo Mozillo from Countrywide Financial. He'd pocketed millions while the company doled out some prime mortgages that hid rising risks for investors. The impact was this crippled the whole economy by contributing to the subprime mortgage crisis. His punishment, he was fined $67 million by the SEC. I believe that represents something like 10% of what he'd earned. We'll see what happens to Goldman Sachs in the wake of the fact that their CEO, Lloyd Blankenfeld, testified a few weeks ago at an insider trading trial of a hedged fund billionaire that, uh, that the Gold, a Goldman board member had violated the firm's confidentiality policies when it fed Rajat Rajaratnam information about the firm's earnings and strategic plans. We expect nothing to come of that, but we'll keep an eye on it. By the way, the New York Times noted last week that corporate America's profits rose 29% last year, the fastest growth in more than 50 years. That's 5-0 years. While the return to profitability has resulted, naturally, in hefty raises for many CEOs, these improved results have yet to trickle down to most employees, according to the Times. And here's a weird story. Apparently, China posted its first quarterly trade deficit in seven years last quarter. Apparently, the first quarter excess of imports over exports amounted to $1 billion, but China is still expected to post a trade surplus by the end of the year. By the way, new projections show that China may well overtake the United States as the world's largest economy in the next couple of years. We sometimes have our doubts about the wisdom of economists. Uh, really have my doubts about Robert Samuelson writing in the Washington Post who noted in the wake of the story, the blockbuster story, that General Electric paid no U.S. income taxes last year, despite worldwide operating profits of $14 billion. Samuelson says, well, the problem here is that, you know, we're taxing these guys too highly. He suggests we cut the corporate tax from its current 35% 
and to make up for lost revenue, raise the individual rate on dividends and capital gains, currently taxed at 15%. Well, I'm no economist, but when Samuelson says that, you know, if we lower the top corporate tax to 26%, so it's closer to Europe's 25%, and then return to taxing dividends and capital gains at 28%, that's going to make us a more inviting destination for foreign and American multinationals. My only question is, how do we hold these guys accountable for their accounting? Multinationals have always played this game of the fact that, no, 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 we didn't make our profits here, we made them there. Seems to be more or less on the honor system of what taxes they're going to pay in what country. No, I don't know how to solve the problem. Let's do some more comedy in our second segment with Jason Arminio and Mike O'Connell. After a short break, you're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Don't go away. Stones. 